Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Today's guest name is Dan Zugel. Dan is the ESOP guy. So we had the SBA guy on and now we've got the ESOP guy. Dan works for Business Transition Advisors and has been doing ESOPs for 19 years. And the reason I wanted to have Dan on is because we have talked about ESOPs in some previous episodes. We've had Nina Hale on who described her ESOP journey, but I thought we I wanted to start back and actually get the full 101 of ESOPs because I think there's a lot of different messages out there about ESOPs on when it's right. You hear a lot of bad horror stories about ESOPs that have failed. And Dan does a really good job at explaining what has changed in some laws that might have impacted some of the previous failures. But we wanted to totally demystify ESOPs, understanding how you value the business, how the payment structures are paid out with a combination of bank financing and seller financing. We talked about what life was like before an ESOP and then also what it's like afterwards and whether your perks change, your control changes or not. And then what kind of employee structure, the vesting structure looks like with the shares and really just top down of what it looks like in order to accomplish an ESOP. And He talks about the four tax strategies and tax benefits that an ESOP just knocks out of the park. And I can tell you what, it is amazing really having them clarified because of the tax advantages of this, the the story and the complications that come with an ESOP, the potential return on investment is like something I've never seen before. So Dan's got a ton of credibility because he started at MetLife, built out their ESOP division, and then worked on switching over to business transition advisors and has been doing that for eight years with them. If you've ever had any thought about whether an ESOP was right for you or you want to know a bunch more, we get a little technical and we went a little long, but I really hope that this gets you the information that you need to start to visualize of whether this is something that makes sense for you or not. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the episode with Dan. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by The Valley Advantage. The Valley Advantage is a platform delivered via peer groups and or one-on-one to help you build a valuable company that can thrive without you while putting an exit plan in place so you have the options to sell when you want to who you want for how much you want. You're able to manage the business by the numbers, work in the business as much or as little as you want, and you fully understand how the business impacts your personal financials. If you want to know more, check out the show notes or the website. Good afternoon, Dan. How you doing? I'm fine. Thank you. Looking forward to having you on the show. Uh, we have had a couple other episodes in the past about ESOP's uh, story uh, that Nina gave about her exit to an ESOP and a couple other brief ones. And I think the topic is a, a one that we should really dive into. And that's why I was excited when I met you at the BEI Exit Planning Summit because of your experience and how many transactions you've done. And you had some, you challenged my thought process on a couple things. So uh, now that you're here, can you just kind of maybe start at the beginning with how did you get into the ESOP world and start working for business transition advisors? Oh, certainly. Certainly. Thanks for having me. I do appreciate it. Yeah, I started doing ESOPs about 19 years ago, uh, kind of by accident. I worked for an insurance company and we had business owners who uh, were looking to exit and looking for different methods of doing so. And uh, uh, somebody came to us and said, have you heard of this thing called an ESOP? And we said, what is that? And then we did some research on it and said, well, heck, this is a really, really 
great way for a business owner to potentially exit their business. Very tax advantaged and it helps with family transitions. Just a lot of positive aspects to it. And we should explore more. And we ended up making a whole department. And uh, that insurance company was MetLife. And so I ran the ESOP department for MetLife for many years uh, for the purpose of helping our clients uh, with an exit strategy that perhaps they have not heard about that might be net most after-tax dollars in their pocket. And an ESOP can provide the most after-tax dollars of any other method. And so at, at MetLife, we took that and ran with that because not a lot of folks were talking about it. And so therefore, we created quite a niche. And I've been doing it ever since for a total of 19 years. So is Business Transition Advisors part of MetLife then? No, but we Business Transition Advisors is the firm that MetLife outsourced the actual heavy lifting to. So how long have you been uh, at Business Transition Advisors then? About eight years. Um, The the owners of Business Transition Advisors said, hey, you've been working inside uh, MetLife for many years with the uh, high-end advisors there. But, you know, there's a lot of folks out there that can use your your advice on where an ESOP makes sense, what are the tax advantages, and how does it work with families. Uh, why don't you come work for us and uh, you, you can, uh, you know, spread the gospel uh, many different ways as opposed to just through one particular company. And I said, I jumped at the chance and, I, and I've loved it ever since. Well, and you've got so much experience in you, even on your website, all the deals that you guys have done. And I want to tap into that experience today just having this kind of let's cover all the different pieces of it as much as we can without getting too far down uh, one technical uh, rabbit hole or another. But why don't we just, let's start at the beginning. What is an ESOP? And can you kind of just give us the brief overview? Yeah, I definitely will do that. And I, I think, you know, any overview should uh, not be technical to the point where you're talking about every tax change since ERISA was formed in 1974, which is a lot of ESOP presentations that I hear. I like to keep it more practical. You know, where does it fit? Um, you know, where, what type companies does it fit? Uh, what are the tax advantages? And what's the practical aspects of it that you don't read in a textbook? Uh, and that's what I thought we could cover today, if that's okay with you. Yeah, and I, I think it's a good, the, the reason I want, wanted to have that, because there's, you hear there's so many good things about it, but then I think there's so much bad gossip around it from failed ESOPs that business owners have a lot of fear around it, and there's a lot of ambiguity. So I think, yeah, to your point, let, let's let's go over like the practical fits and everything. So just, yeah, I'll, I'll just let you kind of kick it off going, you know, what is the, ma- the main structure of an ESOP and the general concept? Right. Let's do that. Well, to start, I like to start with, uh, I believe Vince Lombardi said, gentlemen, this is a football. Well, I like to say, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, this is an ESOP. Uh, and the reason I do it that way is people confuse ESOPs with stock options. And ESOP stands for Employee Stock Ownership Plan, not stock options that the chairman of GE gets $10 million of stock op- options next year. An ESOP, Employee Stock Ownership Plan, actually means something to um, the Department of Labor, the IRS, and the financial professionals around the country. And ESOP's a qualified retirement plan, Ryan. Uh, it's like a 401k, like a profit sharing plan. It literally covered under the same code sections as 401ks, profit sharing plans, and pension plans. Uh, the big difference is an ESOP has one primarily invest- primary investment, and that's the stock of the sponsoring company. Whereas a 401k and other type of qualified retirement plans have they get money, they get deferrals, they get matches, and they go out and reinvest and help other company raise capital, IBM, Ford, whatever the mutual fund companies purchase, 
You're helping them with their capital needs. And ESOP was designed to help the selling shareholder with their capital needs, namely as an exit strategy and a purchaser of stock. But being a retirement plan, there's some pros and cons there, right? A retirement plan has rules and regulations. As we know, the Department of Labor oversees retirement plans because it's for the benefit of the employees. We have to follow discrimination rules, testing rules, contribution limits, things of that sort. And that's where somebody like myself comes in. We make sure we cross those T's and dot those I's. But the flip side is, because it's a qualified retirement plan, there is a lot of tax benefits to the selling shareholder, the company, and the employees uh, that come along with doing an ESOP through this qualified plan. And the reason the government encourages this, uh, and they do, in fact, people say, boy, Dan, you talk about all these tax advantages that I'm going to go through in a minute. Why does the government allow this? Why do they close these, these loopholes? And my answer is they don't consider these loopholes at all. They encourage ESOPs. Because as I mentioned, the qualified plan is a, a plan that's designed for the benefit of the employees. And if the ESOP, the qualified plan, buys stock of the company and the shares are allocated to the rank and file and the workers and the employees of that company, the shares of the company are ending up in the hands of the folks that are helping to build this company. So you can see where perhaps one political party might like the you know, the term redistribution of wealth. Employees are getting shares through no out-of-pocket cost of their own in the company in which they work. And that serves a social purpose. The government says, hey, the more people that have independent wealth at the company in which they work, in theory, that's less that they're going to people on the government safety net later on. And so the one party really likes that. The other party really likes the idea of, well, heck, I agree with the social policy there of more people with independent wealth and taking care of themselves. So we're willing to give incredible tax breaks uh, in order to accomplish this goal. So both parties have come together in a real kumbaya moment, Ryan, to um, promote ESOPs. In fact, there's pending legislation to even promote and give even more tax advantages to ESOP companies uh, to encourage them to do ESOPs. So they're not looking to close any loopholes. Uh, they're actually looking to increase the availability and the participation in employee-owned plans. Which, so I love it because I, I, well, I want to hear more about those uh, potential um, benefits that are coming down the road. But before, because I, I think the taxes is something that everybody wants to dive right into. But before we kind of get into that, let's tee it up to, you know, who are ideal candidates? I mean, is there employee thresholds, valuation thresholds? Like who is a good candidate on the, because I think there's probably two different ways to answer this. The financial or the financial avenue, but also there's cultural things too that I, I want to maybe kind of tackle both of those. No, that's a good point, and it's a good time to, to bring this up before we delve into some of the other issues. Well, from just a, a fact pattern standpoint, the size and shape of a company, typically we need a company worth about $5 million of value or more, which equates to maybe a million dollars of net earnings or uh, for those financially sophisticated, a million of EBITDA. Um, so about a million of net earnings. Uh, equals about a $5 million company on average, about 20 or more employees, and about a million of payroll. And the reason I say that is, um, you know, we talk, when we talk about the pros and cons of ESOPs, people say, well, I hear ESOPs are expensive mm -hmm. and complicated. <laughs> and I say, yeah, they, they, they are. That's why we need a threshold of about $5 million of value and, and payroll numbers and cash flow um, to be able to, to, to make the ESOP work. But when you get to those thresholds, generally, the benefits far outweigh 
the the costs of doing it in the first place. So that's kind of the threshold. And that's uniform. That's not just me and my firm. That's across the ESOP industry. It's about the level there. But when you say, what does a candidate, what does an ESOP company look like? Who looks at an ESOP? Well, I have a generic example I've used for many years, and I, I, I call it Joe and Mary's Cement Company. Well, Joe and Mary have had this cement company, you know, that they started 35, 40 years ago with a wheelbarrow and a bag of quick creep, right? Uh, they paid off the wheelbarrow, bought a truck, uh, bought their building, paid off their building, uh, bought a competitor or two, bought some additional uh, buildings, bought a co- additional competitors, put their kids through college, put a few bucks in their retirement plan. Lo and behold, this 30 or 40 years later, Joe and Mary have a nice business worth 10, 20, 30 million dollars. Um, the vast majority of their net worth is tied up in this business. Their kid maybe just graduated college or maybe thinking about getting into the business, but or or forget the kid. Maybe it's key managers they have working there that have been beside them for a long time. And so now the rub comes, the key managers or the children says, I want the business. Mom and pop say, hey, I can't afford to give it to you. You can buy it. But the kids and key managers say, well, I'd like the business, but I don't have any money. I can't afford to buy it. And the bank's not going to loan me what I need to buy this. Uh, so we're kind of stuck. You know, wh- where do we go? Well, that's where an ESOP may really come into play. An ESOP's an excellent vehicle uh, to facilitate the transfer of power and management from one generation to another, yet providing the senior generation with the cash and the cash flow they need for a successful retirement. So that's where we see a lot of our initial inquiries come from are situations like that. But that is by far not the only scenario, but that's a very common scenario that we see, Ryan. Well, which is, I, I mean, that was us in our uh, previous business. And I, I think most of the market entrepreneurs, I mean, you just, whether it's Joe and Mary, it, I mean, I think that transfers into almost any scenarios that I run through. So let's say Joe, I mean, let's take, I like this, I like this story. So like, let's take Joe and Mary, how do you, let's walk through the process and, and then, kind of figure out the benefits that that would actually have to have them structure this. So what are the, what are the questions that they start asking? And then how do they, how do you, how does the process begin? Yeah, right. Well, the first couple of questions, we're going to get questions of what's my value? How much do I get for an ESOP? If, if I let the ESOP buy my shares, am I get more or less than somebody else from the outside? What happens to my favorite employees and my kid that works in the business? Are they out of work? Now, what happens to my employees? Are they going to take my patent and shut down my plant and fire my workers that have been here for 30 years? Is my picture in the front um, entryway, is that going to be taken down? An Acme company logo put there instead? You know, These are the kind of questions I hear every day uh, when, when we're talking about ESOP or other methods of selling a business. And you know, where an ESOP comes into play, obviously, I'm, I'm painting a picture here. An ESOP is an internal sale. And so owners generally like it and say, look, I can still stick around. Even if I sell more than 51% of my company, I can still be chair, CEO, president of the company for as long as I want, still take salary and benefits. I just happen to sell some of the equity or even all of my equity, uh, but I don't have an outside buyer. I don't have outside influences that says we're going to wear ties on Fridays now. (laughs) Um, Right, you know, and, and and maybe the receptionist who's been there for thirty years getting a four percent raise every year, even in down years, that, that generally that person with an outside sale, they're going to be replaced with somebody that worked for half the amount. And I, think, I don't think uh, Junior's uh, a car lease is going to be renewed either, quite frankly, because uh, people buy businesses, they like to trim costs, especially ones they can replace with maybe some more market-driven 
and 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 disregard the culture and the, and the fabric in that community that this company has has developed. And moreover, many times the business owner doesn't want to sell their business to the to some outside buyer. And by the way, the ESOP's not necessarily a low bidder. Generally, the ESOP's one of the highest prices you're going to get for the business, except for some strategic sales. But that owner doesn't want to show up to church in this small town where he he and she were the largest employer, show up on Sunday in the brand new Cadillac, and they're looking at the faces of all those employees that just got laid off because the new employer just laid off the whole manufacturing division and shipped the, shipped the, the manufacturing to some other town uh, or another state altogether. So kind of that concern about the, fam- about the family uh, feeling and the fabric of that communication and donating to the uh, Kiwanis Club and having their, their company name on the T-shirts of the Little League team, you know, that stuff really matters. And ESOPs can really solve those kind of issues. So how, how can, I love it because I, I want to, I think the big, you know, the biggest concern a lot of people have is the legacy. You know, it's the legacy of, like right. you just said, paying your receptionist above market rate because they were a family friend. I mean, that's why a lot of these entrepreneurs and you know, it's so intertwined to your life. So how do you accomplish all of that while getting the highest bid? So I, I'm just Let's dive into the valuation because how can your company afford to put that and how does that work for the, the financial structure in order to be able to get the highest bid, but yet accomplish all that stuff that you've, they've built for years? Well, you know, that might, this might be a good time to backtrack a little bit. Let me, let me go through the four tax advantages. Yeah. Then we can layer on a typical transaction. Does that work? Yeah, I love it. Okay. The four major tax advantages. One is, and, and I'm not going to get into the specific uh, details of, what type of NTC Corp, S Corp, whatnot. Uh, We can delve into that later if we want to, but for purposes of right now, there are four major tax advantages. One is, this is the oldest ESOP tax benefit. It says, if a business owner sells their business to their own company's ESOP, remember, it's a retirement plan. So they sell their business to their own retirement plan. The seller can indefinitely defer and even eliminate the capital gains taxes that are normally due in a sale of a business. They potentially cannot pay capital gains tax on the sale. It's one of those few scenarios in the tax code that allow this. One is people may be familiar with a 1031 real estate exchange. You have an old family piece of property by the river, you sell it, you buy a new piece of property, you don't have to recognize and pay a tax on that gain. You take your basis of the old property by the river, which is practically zero, and you transfer it to this new company, we a new property we just bought for $2 million. Now, this $2 million property still has a zero basis, but you didn't have to recognize a gain on it. 1035 is a provision in life insurance. We had an old policy. A better one came along. You sell it and buy a new one. You don't have to recognize a gain on maybe any cash value uh, increase that may have been generated. Well, that's 1031, 1035. 1042 is the tax code, which is basically the same thing, but only for ESOPs that says if you sell your stock to an ESOP, you can defer the capital gains, and then there's ways you can eliminate the capital gains tax altogether. That's the first big tax advantage and the oldest tax advantage of an ESOP. And that is, before we go into the other three, Dan, it's because you're doing a stock sale, right? Because we've talked a lot about asset and stock sales on on the show, but it's because when you're selling to an ESOP, it is a stock sale, which is why there's capital gains the biggest concern, correct? Right, Right. Now, even if you pay the capital gains tax in an ESOP sale, you are getting capital gains tax treatment because it is a stock sale. An asset sale, as you probably discussed, could be a combination of recapture. It might be some combination of ordinary income and stock sale. And then we have the old issues of liability and why you want a stock sale versus an asset mm-hmm. sale. But even beyond that, even though an ESOP 
would be taxed as capital gains, which is a preferable way of being taxed, ESOPs take it a step further that says you may not even have to pay that on the sale. Maybe never. So you may have a, uh, a big you deal. May, Joe, Mary may have, <laughs> Joe and Mary may have started this business, like I said, with a world growing back of Quitcrete. Their basis is $25 in this business. You sell it for $20 million. Normally, you'd have to pay capital gains on the difference between $20 million and $25, right? Well, in an ESOP, potentially, all that gain, basically $25 million, could go to Joe and Mary uh, capital gains tax-free if structured properly. I don't know of any other way of selling a business that gets you that, that tax no, I don't either. <laughs> so let, let's go into the, what's the second one then? Second tax, tax advantage is if Joe and Mary sell $25 million of stock to the ESOP, they potentially don't pay capital gains on the sale, but also the company would get at least a $25 million income tax deduction for that sale. So Joe and Mary get $25 million. The company gets to write off $25 million to lower their taxable income and thus lower their taxes by the tax they would have paid on $25 million. It's a wow. big deduction. Yes. And that, what, how long can you deduct that? I mean, is there a certain schedule that they go well, for? There is, and we're getting into some technicalities, but it's over a period of years. Over a period of years, the company will ultimately deduct the entire sales price, maybe over a 20-year period. So annually, they'll get a big old deduction, uh, and over time, it'll equal and generally exceed the, um, the, the sale price. So that's a nice big deduction you get. Mm-hmm. But- with that, with that being said, the third tax advantage is kind of the, the big one these days. And this has changed about uh, 18 years ago, about a little after I started in the ESOP business, where um, when S corporations were allowed to get involved in ESOPs. So the third tax advantage is this. To the extent you're an ESOP-owned company, and the trend is going 100%, trend is going 100% ESOP-owned company, you become an S corporation. And therefore, because it's a flow-through entity, to the extent your ESOP-owned company, say 100%, the profits of the company are now no longer subject to federal or state income tax on any level. Yep. I, said, I said the profits of the company, I'm going to repeat that because people don't believe me sometimes. If you're 100% ESOP-owned S corporation, the profits of the company aren't taxed ever again by a federal or state body to any individual, the ESOP nor the company. Nobody's paying tax on the profits. We are literally driving 35, 45, 50%, depending on the state, cap, additional cash flow to the bottom line of the company. You throw those no taxes and the de- deduction on top of each other, the, the amount of room in your cash flow goes through the roof. Yeah. Well, and the interesting thing is there, I was just going to say, you, you, you kind of alluded to it, if, if that third tax advantage of not paying income tax is true, it makes that second tax advantage of the deduction irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, well, even, yeah the- so even though you might have a $25 million deduction, well, it doesn't matter because you're not paying tax anyway. So mm-hmm. as great as that advantage is, it's irrelevant if number three is true and you're and 100%. that's only for the 100%. So like, even if, I mean, does, do you have to have a 100% sale to the ESOP in order to get that? To be 100% tax-free. So if you're less than 100%, you're a 50% ESOP, well, then that number two deduction, that deduction, the second tax advantage is still very valuable. Yep, yep. Because even though only half the business is taxable, we're going to drive down that taxable income because we get that huge deduction. So if you're less than 100%, that deduction still is very, very important. But mm-hmm. if you're 100%, which is the trend, um, we're talking about trends here. This is a current ESOP presentation. Mm-hmm. About 
20% of all new ESOPs are going 100% so they can be 100% tax-free. It's just cash flows a lot better. Well, and just to kind of explain, because what's happening is the government is just taxing the employees as they retire and take the distribution. So it's just like a normal retirement plan. That's right. So when the employees leave, die, retire, um, become disabled, um, you know, they, they have a stock, they have a stock balance. And they say, look, I have, you know, 73 shares of Joe's Cement Company. I have a balance of $72,000. The company has a legal liability and legal responsibility to buy back those shares when the employees leave. So the employees get the value of those shares. The company has to buy back their shares. The employees get that value. And then they generally roll that into an individual IRA because it's qualified plan money, just like a 401k. They roll into an IRA. And then when they use that money, when they retire and they tap into that IRA, then it is taxable to them, um, just as it, just like um, an IRA money would be. But they're paying tax on something they were given. So it's like, uh, yes, they are paying tax. They're the only people really paying tax here, but it's on a huge gift that mm-hmm. they were given. Mm-hmm. And most people believe it's a fair trade-off. And typically for the employees, Ryan, the employee's retirement benefit when an ESOP is in place is generally two and a half to three times the retirement benefit per employee than a retirement plan alone. Than a, than a 401k plan alone. Wow, that's a, that's a so, huge number. Right. So, yeah, I didn't say that very clearly. So in a, so when you add an ESOP to a 401k plan, have both in place, the average employee gets two and a half to three times greater retirement benefit than mm-hmm. a 401k alone. Yep. Yep. Well, yeah. And we can go, I want to go into the the employees and the liquidation in a little bit, but let's let's sure. uh, wrap up the four. So what's the, what's the fourth tax advantage? Well, I'm going to defer the fourth until we get to it later, but some very significant estate tax planning opportunities. It's a great time to do personal estate planning for the selling shareholder when they do an ESOP. And it won't make sense now, but when we get into that part later, I will remind us of number four still being an open topic and we'll touch on it then. Okay, perfect. So then let's let's go into how, how is this structured then? So if the business owner is selling to the ESOP, how is it actually structured? What kind of notes or uh, like who's paying the business or who's paying the, the seller yeah. the actual money? Yeah, here's how it works. Uh, we'll just run through Joe and Mary here. Joe and Mary have this business. They create an ESOP. They have an additional retirement plan. They keep the 401k. They add another retirement plan called an ESOP. The ESOP goes out and um, prob- tries usually borrows some money from a bank. And they'll borrow as much as they can from the bank. Um, and uh, the bank will the lends, lends the ESOP money. The ESOP takes the money that the ESOP uh, and the ESOP takes the money that the, that it borrowed and buys the stock from Joe and Mary. I didn't say that very clearly. Let me repeat that. Mm-hmm. So the ESOP borrows money from a bank. The ESOP now has money. It uses that money to buy Joe and Mary's stock. The company now uses the tax savings that we were talking about before. We're not paying tax anymore. So we use all the tax savings we generated. And the company makes contributions to its ESOP, its retirement plan every year. The retirement plan says, thanks. What do I do with this? Oh, I know. I'm going to pay off the bank loan that I took out to buy Joe and Mary's stock. So every year, the company uses some of the tax savings it's generating that year, contributes it to its retirement plan, and that's why you get a deduction, because it's a corporate contribution to a retirement plan. Mm -hmm. The retirement plan gets the money and says, I gotta pay off the loans. It takes the contribution it got and pays off the loans it incurred to buy out Joe and Mary in the first place. And that just continues until the loans repaid. 
So yeah, I I love it because there's so many tax advantages there. You know, so the ESAP being an entity, how does it go find a bank? What kind of banks are special specialized in lending to ESOPs? Is there a certain, I mean, because I've gone through bank bidding processes and and stuff like that. So how do you find the bank in order to do this? Well, you know, my company's role and our our role in the whole process is just to, you know, assist with the education, do the cash flow, feasibility analysis, things of that sort. But then when we decide to do an ESOP, we help and assist with the financing, write a financing memorandum and take it to banks. Now, we will take it to banks and get letters of interest. Now, some of the known national banks that we have relationships and believe it or not, behind the scenes, there's a lot of ESOP departments in all the major banks. And so we'll go to those folks. But I'll tell you, a lot of the local banks and regional banks, they don't want to lose a customer. So they're more than willing often to take a look at it and and offer some lending on the local or regional level. And so they are out there. There's no lack of ESOP lenders out. Uh, in fact, it's a good loan to them. But speaking of the financing, um, can I take that another step? Unless you have another yeah, question no, on that, no, Ryan. No, let's, let's, let's dive in. Because in my example, you, you might have heard me hesitating a little bit because I didn't know how to, I wanted to address it. But if we're buying 100% of Joe and Mary's business, many people listening to this might say, yeah, but there's not a bank in the world that's going to lend 100% of the value of Joe and Mary's business, right? Mm-hmm. They're not going to lend all of it. They're going to lend maybe 30, 40, or 50% of the value of the business, maybe uh, you know, a couple, couple multiples of their earnings, basically. So that leaves a gap. Now, because we're not paying income tax anymore, we have g- virtually all the cash flow we need to finance a 100% sale. The problem is the bank's not lending us all we need. So what do we do? There's a shortfall. What do we do? Well, typically what we do is we say to the seller, hey, look, seller, um, you know, the bank lent 40 or 50%. Why don't you take an installment note for anything above for the remaining 50%? We're going to pay you so much a year for the next 10 years. So you have a combination of a big upfront payment from whatever the bank lent at 4% or 4.5%. And then the seller takes back a note for maybe 10 years, uh, a subordinate note behind the bank and gets periodic payments until they're paid off 100% of the sale price. So, you know, yeah, people are saying, well, heck, I'm on the hook then, right? Well, in a way, because you still have a seller note. And that's true. You know, if the company has some financial problems and they owe you money, there might be a delay or may not even get it in a certain year. Hope that that rarely happens in the plans well, we do. Yeah, but it's the same thing with any kind of internal management transition or even if you're to sell to your kids anyways, you're still carrying a lot of risk. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But there's there's some good news. If we did this podcast, Brian, uh, six years ago, I would have said to the listeners, hey, look, the bank's charging four and a half percent. You're taking a seller note. You're entitled to market rate of interest. The bank's charging four. Well, your market rate's 4%. And we go happily on our way. We do 100% sale, be tax-free. The bank would get 4% and the seller would get 4%. But over the last four, five, six years, you know, it, it, people started saying, but wait a minute, is that really market rate? If the, <laughs> if the seller is sitting behind the bank um, right, and people right. are scratching heads, well, what would, what would another lender, what would a mezzanine lender or private equity, if they were coming in here and they were subordinate to a bank, maybe interest only, until the bank's repaid, they don't get paid until the bank gets paid off. Would they charge 4%? Heck no. <laughs> no way. They're going to charge 8, 10, 12%, right? I mean, to take that risk, they deserve that rate of return. So why the heck shouldn't Joe and Mary get that same market rate of interest? And finally, you know, four or five, six years ago, all the courts and the Department of Labor and IRS and everybody said, yeah, they're taking the same risk as that 
secondary lender would have. They deserve the same market rate of return. And so therefore, Joe and Mary can get a total rate of return, 8, 10, 12% in some scenarios, should they want to. Now, there's some problems with that. Um, the problem is, A, the bank hates it, right? The bank doesn't like anybody making more interest than they do. Sorry, bankers, <laughs> you're listening to this. They don't. Um, and second of all, the seller, um, that interest portion, remember the principal portion, mm-hmm. may be taxable as capital gains or may not be taxable at all, right? Depending if we structure it up front, that was the first tax advantage, was potentially not paying any capital gains at all on the principal. However, if you're taking 8% interest or even 4% interest, the interest portion is going to be taxable no matter what at ordinary income rates, right? Because it's not the principal you're selling, you're getting money. That's yep. the interest you're getting. And that's taxable as ordinary income. So if you're getting 12% interest on half the company, you know that's a lot of taxable income. Mm-hmm. So to bump you up in your personal rates, you're probably going to lose almost half of that to, to ordinary income tax. So the modern method, which my firm specializes in, uh, as well as other top planners out there, and this is right down Main Street, um, will say to the seller, look, you could take 8, 10, 12%, but how about this? Let's, let's do something different. Why don't you take 4% like the bank? We're going to lower your current taxation. The bank's happier, and we're helping the cash flow of the company because they're not paying 8, 10, 12% out the door. They're only paying 4 but the seller should be rewarded for taking 4 instead of 8 or 10 or 12. So what we do is we say, look, sir, you're taking 4, lower your tax rate. But because you did that, we're going to reward you with a payment in kind. We're going to give you something else. And, and often it's in the form of, we call them warrants, warrants, W-A-R-R-A-N-T-S, which is basically only a future equity stake in the company as a reward. And we can generally in the financing package, because that seller took 4% instead of 12 we can give them 20 or 25% of the future equity value of the company even though they already sold 100%. They get another second bite at the apple, up to 20, 25% of the future equity value of the company. Uh, when the bank loan and that seller note at 4% is paid off, they get another checker note for up to 25% of the future value of the company. And, it, and that's taxed as capital gains, not taxed as ordinary income as that interest would have been. And that time horizon, if we're if we're back in that, that's roughly what ten years down the road when that yeah, would actually happen. Eight, eight to twelve years generally. Okay. And sometimes a lot sooner because the company's not paying tax, they can pay off the bank note a lot faster than the five years, and then they can pay off the seller note a lot faster than five years, and so it could happen, you know, fairly quickly. However, we have a lot of owners that say, well, that that, that second bite at the apple, up to twenty twenty five percent, is payable when the other notes are paid off. I love the fact that the, my value, 25% of the future value is growing every year. I don't want to pay off those notes. I'm sticking around. I'm still president, CEO. I might be in the ESOP. I'm getting salary, perks, benefits, healthcare, cars. I'm happy working here, even though I don't own it anymore. I'm an employee making more money than anybody. I'm, I love sitting here. I'm happy to have these notes not paid off because I want my future 20% to be worth as much as it possibly can. So I might delay that 20 years if I want. So it's all and circumstances of what the owners, what they're looking to do. Do they want out and go fishing or do they want to stay busy as a lot of business owners do? They want an office to go to. They don't want to be kicked out the day they sell to somebody. Uh, and that's another pro. Well, and I, I like that topic because like, what is, what is life like before and after an ESOP? So obviously before, and maybe I can kind of tee this up. So, you know, there's, I think we've referred on the show before the great game of business by Jack Stack. So where he refers to his ESOP strategy sure. and there's this open book management. So there's a lot of stuff that has to happen 
in your, in your culture and the way you manage it before. But, you know, a lot of, I mean, just like us and every other, every other entrepreneur, there's a lot of perks that come with owning a business. So what is the relationship and what do you got to do to clean it up? And how does the relationship with your business and the perks change afterwards? So it's the perks and the control, like what does the, the before and after look like? Yeah, no, that's, that's very important. I'm glad you brought it up. The, um, general in general control really doesn't have to change um the esop buys the stock but however it's important to note that the employees never actually own a share of stock they have a beneficial interest in the trust that owns stock on their behalf so they don't have minority shareholder rights i'm getting a little nerdy but they don't have um, minority shareholder rights that are granted by the states that means they don't have a right to see confidential financial information ryan if you owned one share of my company you'd have a right to certain financial information. It's state law would say, you have a right to see what's going on in this company so you're not being uh, taken advantage of. In an ESOP, the employees don't have those same rights because they don't have actual shares. However, the trustee who owns the stock on their behalf will get to see some financial information. Mm, Um, But that trustee has no interest in running the company, nor do they control the board. So in an ESOP company, mom and pop can still control the board be president and CEO and have the majority control on the board and the trustee doesn't even sit on the board. Uh, and so mom and pop still control the board and they direct the trustee how to vote the shares many times. They say, trustees show up at the next board meeting and vote for me, my wife and my kid for the next term of the board. Trustee is a directed trustee. They don't have discretion unless the owners are telling them to break the law or take advantage of the employees. So that trustee will show up at the next board meeting and vote for the mom and pop and the kid to be on the board for the next term. And and because mom and pop are on the board, they may get some board fees. If pop, in, in our example, if pop's still the president and CEO and still driving sales, well, pop's still getting commission. Um, president and CEO salaries gets the perks, um, the, the cars, the phones, whatever's ordinary and customary for somebody in that position of a company that size. Now, we may have to clean up the cousin who's on the payroll that's not actually working there anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. You know, hey, we're all laughing, but we know about that <laughs> boat down in Florida that's for customer use, although a customer, you know, we have to clean some of that stuff up. <laughs> and, 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 one, and you have to actually have to have board meetings now, because right now board meetings are at the breakfast table. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to actually have to have some board minutes, uh, some meetings, and have maybe an attorney, you know, we know some good attorneys that could do that. Um, you know, they'll sit down and have a board meeting once or twice a year, just document it because the Department of Labor comes in because it's a retirement plan. They want to see that this company is being um, run properly. And one other thing that might change post-transaction, and I, I say this tongue in cheek, I, I'm kind of smiling when I say it, but the, the, the seller loses their thieving rights, thieving rights, you know, because right now, if there's an extra million bucks sitting in there, that right now the owner could say, well, it's my company. I could just go grab that if I want to, right? Mm-hmm. I want to buy a vacation. I'm going to take that million bucks. But once you sell it to the ESOP, you lose that right, right? You're an employee. You're getting fair market value for your stock. You're getting a future equity stake potentially. Uh, you're getting a market rate of salary, board fees. You don't have a right to still go in and grab that million bucks that's sitting there because you don't technically own the company. You'd be taking that from the employee's pockets. And that's where the trustee has to say, hey, look, it's not your money anymore. It's you know, it's the it's the uh, the ESOP's uh, value. It's part of the company value. Now we can use that money to go buy a competitor to drive value. We can do it to launch a new product. That's different. You just can't take it to go buy that house down and wherever you want to buy it. So, so that's what changes. So with the trustee, how do you pick the trustee, and then when do they actually ask for the financials? And is it more? Is it is it an actual cordial relationship, or is it kind of just like 
for show or is there actually more uh, strict limitations to it? What is it? What's the relationship look like? It's a very friendly relationship, but the trustee for the transaction itself, when you're making the, the, the when the ESOP's buying the stock, we kind of glossed over that, but that's a true blue sale of stock with due diligence. And there will even be an independent trustee that doesn't know the company that's going to negotiate the sale with the seller. With that being said, it's probably the most friendly negotiation you've ever seen. Uh, the trustee wants to buy the stock. The seller wants to sell the stock. So it's a it's a very friendly negotiation. However, it's got to be a negotiation. Mm-hmm. It can't be too out of whack. So the trustee gets their own valuation. Uh, my firm generally serves as the valuation firm for the seller. And I don't see their valuation. They don't see ours. And we negotiate for a fair fair sales price. So that's for the transaction itself. So let's, let's take a pause there because I'm curious on how are you guys valuing the business? Is it a is it a discounted cash flow? Is it a multiple of EBITDA? Do you do market rates? How do you, how do you guys actually come to that conclusion? All of that. It's, it's whatever's ordinary and customary for that type of business. And it's usually a blended value of all those different methods. Got it. And, um, and then we come up with maybe weight things differently, 25% for the discounted cash flow method, maybe 50% for the you know, whatever. And we'd blend those to get a fair market based on what other companies that are in that similar market and similar size, how they're valued. So how do you take in a unique circumstances where like, cause you know, um, we're familiar with the value builder system, John Warlow's key drivers or any kind of value building approach where there might be something outside of just the EBITDA or the, the cash flow that's important. I mean, how do you take some of those intrinsic values and factor that into your valuation? Well, just like any valuation, you know, you look at anything extraordinary. You look at one-time expenses. You look at adding back some of those things we talked about, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the boats, and things of that sort. <clears throat> Patents, excess, ca- excess cash on the books, signed contracts that maybe aren't uh, realized yet the revenues, but hey, we have ironclad contracts with these six companies. And we, you know, here's, our co- here's the revenue that we project coming in. ESOPs look a lot more forward at projections than generally any other type of sale. Yes, we look at trailing 12 months, but the ESOP really looks a little, lot more forward to what's coming down the pike, as long as it's realistic and can be justified, like with signed contracts and things of that sort. Mm-hmm. So those type of things uh, really enhance the value of the ESOP, which is why I say ESOP value, other than a you know, outright strategic sale that says, I have to have you, and I'm paying a 30% premium for you, all things being equal on a financial sale, ESOP will be... Uh, either at the same price or maybe even a little bit above. So is there kind of like a, a, a tipping point where you want to get full value and you've got, yes, you've got a combination of seller notes and uh, and bank financing, but is there is there a certain ratio of where you don't want to load too much debt to suffocate the actual business, even though you are getting yeah. all those tax advantages? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> You're reading my mind. Yes. I mean, we, we I say um, cash flow is to an ESOP as location is to real estate. It's mm-hmm. all about the cash flow. The good news is we just found a lot of cash flow, right? Mm-hmm. We're not paying tax. So we found a lot of cash flow. But even with that being said, we have to make sure we're not chewing up too much cash flow that the, that the business can't operate their business. The good side of the seller financing is that's extremely flexible. The bank is not extremely flexible. They want their payments, right? Mm-hmm. Seller could say, hey, look, I'm having some trouble this year. Don't pay me this year. Just pay me interest and I'll pick up a principal payment on the back end. Or it might be more positive than that. It might be, well, hey, there's a competitor down the road. I'd rather use the million you owe me and go buy that competitor for a million bucks. Mm. A lot more flexibility on the self-financing side of things than there is on the bank financing. In fact, some people say, I don't want the bank at all. I'll do it all seller financing. 
Got it. So, and then in addition to that, and just something we didn't talk about that you said you might want to bring up, but at the end of the day, the company has a, a legal requirement to buy back those shares of stock. I think it's absolutely vital that the company use some of their tax savings to squirrel away into some kind of corporate stinking fund, corporate assets to grow money. So when that when the company has to buy back these shares down the line, um, they have some assets to do that and some savings to do it. The CFO 20 years from now will be very appreciative because up front, when we're highly leveraged, the stock's not worth much because we're highly leveraged. There's a vesting schedule and the stock is, takes 20, 30 years to be allocated to employee accounts. So up front, the first five, seven years, it's hardly any liability to buy the stock back. Later on, it becomes bigger. I think it's absolutely vital that the company puts some money away. Now, it's like saving for college. You start when your kid's born. I won't say you won't pay for it all, but you might make a dent in that college tuition. Same thing here. When your liability is low and you have all the tax savings, now's the time to squirrel some money away to prepare for that future liability. Um, and I've written some articles on this because I think I take this very seriously. And any ESOP provider, or anybody considering an ESOP, should bake this into their calculations because you need to be prepared. Otherwise, there might be some nasty surprises down the line and some consequences you don't really want. Well, because I, I mean, do you run those in your financial models when you're saying, okay, out of 100 employees, we got 30 that are 50 and they're going to retire at this yeah. and you just kind of figure out how much you're going to have to pay them as you, I mean, all they are is like yes. liqu liquidation events? Yes. With every ESOP we do, we give our our clients, it's baked into our our generic fee, not a generic fee, our base or our everything fee or normal fee, uh, a 20 year projection of what that liability and that out of pocket cost is going to be. And then we'll work with their financial advisor or with the company themselves and help them to develop some strategies that are prudent to finance that future liability and even make suggestions of how much into what type of vehicles. And Although I don't sell I'm sure, sure you've heard the horror, the horror stories, Dan. I mean, there was a there's a company around here. I, I won't name it, but they, very large. They grew extremely fast from a couple hundred to like a thousand. And I believe like the key management personnel, there was the like the company was going to own like sixty million bucks because all these people were leaving and they didn't have enough. They ended up selling to a, a financial buyer because that was yep. the only way to get the money out. Yep. When you when you hear stories like that, when I hear ESOP companies that are in trouble. Or and you hear that, like you mentioned earlier, the horror stories of ESOPs. I I, I would bet 90, 95% of them revolve around two issues. One of them has been solved because of the um, a, a certain institution got kind of their hand slapped really hard and it changed the ESOP industry completely. We were already there, so I'm happy to say we had no issues whatsoever. But um, one of the issues revolves around valuation. It used to be, remember I said the, the, the trustee gets evaluation, we do evaluation, and we don't see each other's evaluation, we negotiate. Mm -hmm. It used to be you got one valuation, you threw it in the middle of the table, and you negotiated from that. <laughs> and, and, and what Joe would do, Joe and Mary would get their brother-in-law to do the valuation. It sounds <laughs> kind of like place. the financial crisis when you'd say, hey, I need a new mortgage on my house. Why don't we just figure out what this is worth and then go get a loan? <laughs> that's exactly right. And that's what was happening. And so that's where every... So the, the large majority of the ESOP lawsuits and the ESOPs getting in trouble revolved around valuation. It wasn't an arm's length transaction. And all, remember I said the ESOPs look at projections. Well, this company, Joe's Cement Company, could be a 2% a year growth. And all of a sudden, they're going to do an ESOP and the projections are a hockey stick. <laughs> and, and people used to get away with it. And so a lot of the lawsuits were around that. That problem's pretty much been solved and that's good for the industry. Um, and I'm glad that came about. I was very supportive of that. Uh, and the second thing is the repurchase liability, the obligation of the company to buy back the shares when employees eventually 
um, you know, die, become disabled, retire. When I was at MetLife, they did a very important study. They spent millions and millions of dollars. They figured out that everybody dies. And so, <laughs> point being, one way or the other, the employees are going to cash out, right? Yep, yep. Either permanently or from the ESOP, you're going to owe them some money somehow. Uh, and to just put your head in the sand and say, we're going to do that by cash flow because the times are always going to be good is very silly. And that's, you have to sell the company, they get sued. In fact, the company's board of directors could get potentially sued. There was a lawsuit um, that said the board, you need to be, you knew about this liability. It's an off balance sheet liability, but they knew about it nonetheless. That's in the footnotes. You did not prepare for it. And the company tanked and the ESOP value tanked because the company didn't have the cash flow. Therefore, we're suing you, per potentially suing you personally for not managing that liability. So not to be scare everybody that those, those cases are very, very rare, but it shows the importance of preparing for that eventual liability. And uh, well, we, we think whoever's resop should be very um, uh, conscious of that and prepare for that, even though it may be down the road. And that certain advisor may no longer be in the business or even around, but the consequences that the company could be drastic. Well, and this is where, I mean, it's really all coming, comes down to knowing your numbers. And do you, do you find that it's uh, easier or there's a there's a certain smoothness with the financial maturity of certain uh, companies that if, they, if they've got clean books and they kind of know their numbers where they're able to surface these kind of um, situations a lot easier? Oh, of course. Yes, of course. And proper planning is everything. You know, I made a big deal of this repurchase, but the companies I've been working with for 19 years now, nobody's had a problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, because we've set them up and they've put a systematic plan in place. In fact, there's even, an, I'm not pushing insurance in any way because I don't sell insurance or investments, but there's actually insurance products that are used to finance these long-term liabilities. Because once again, MetLife did a study, right? Everybody dies. You could buy some policies on key executives and that death, those death benefits could flow into the company tax-free later to help pay for these future liabilities, or the company can just put money in some mutual funds or some CDs, or they can put money in a tin can in their backyard. It doesn't matter. I just think they really need to save for it one way mm -hmm. or the other. So well, let's go back kind of to that kind of the structure because how, like what, how do you prioritize whether, you know, if it's a hundred percent, then how much the bank finances versus the seller? I mean, I'm assuming they're kind of levers that all are pull and push in various directions. I mean, would you do, you, do you see what I'm saying? Like, is it something yeah. where if you want the value of you as much as you possibly can, the bank, you know, will do a certain, well, let's say it's 50% and then you've got the seller wiggle room. And then does that also balance in with how much you actually sell to the ESOP? Not generally not. Generally we're backing into, because generally when, when, when you bet, when you talk about the financing, it's kind of the tail of the dog. Okay. We, we know we're getting some bank financing. We know we're going to have to sell or finance some of it. What the exact number is going to be, we can give you a pretty good guess. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, the bank's going to lend two times your EBITDA, two and a half times your EBITDA, your earnings, maybe a little bit more in certain scenarios. Anything else is going to be seller finance. So if they're a, a six times multiple company and the bank lend two times, well, we know the seller's going to finance four times uh, you know, their, their, their earnings. Mm -hmm. It's just what it is. So we have a pretty darn good idea what that's going to be. Got it. So, and as we're kind of just wrapping up the the financing and the, the 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 notes and stuff, I mean, you have to have very big considerations on the industry, right? I mean, obviously the the, the company needs to be sustainable for the next foreseeable future, but also thinking about the industry. Do you guys really dive into that too? And the reason I asked the question is, I've talked to some people that were heavy in the online space and they did an ESOP and it was just interesting because you're, you're, you're placing a very large bet on a ever changing industry. So where does the industry fit into your guys' analysis? 
Yeah, it, it that that means that it matters a lot. And I should say, because people always ask me, you didn't ask the question, but I'm going to answer it anyway. People say, what are the <laughs> what, what are the large what are the industries that do the most DSOPs? Uh, and then I'll go into what you're saying. Okay. Uh, manufacturing is number one. Um, construction is number two industries. And then third is something kind of a lot different. Um, the technical industries, the engineering, architectural, and financial industries. So that's the that rounds out the top three. Uh, and then, then every other industry falls behind that somewhere, but it is across the board all over the place. But industry does matter as far as obviously valuation goes, as what the bank wants to finance. And in fact, sometimes the really high multiple industries are really tough to do. <laughs> you yeah, figure yeah. we have 11 times multiple on some, some, some fancy tech company, just because they're worth that doesn't mean they can cash flow it. Because remember, <laughs> their cash flow might be what a normal five-time multiple company would be. Well, if you're doubling the value, you're doubling the cash flow requirement, even though we might not be paying tax anymore, you still might be chewing up more cash than we have. So yes, it does matter when we're doing our planning. That case, it might have to be a partial ESOP uh, instead of a full ESOP because we just can't cash flow the darn thing. Well, and okay, it's which... I, I, well, as you just mentioned, growth. So you and I had a conversation about a friend of mine who has been thinking ESAP and he's got a very long runway. So when in the growth cycle of the business is it a good time? Because I had this misperception that you should do an ESAP because you can have tax-free growth where like if someone's in heavy acquisition mode, which I've seen in the past where they're essentially buying their competitors tax-free because of the structure of the ESAP. But you had said that, you know, depending on the structure, you should use that, that growth for yourself. And then as it plateaus, am I saying this correctly? Where, where well, the, why don't you answer yeah, fill in the gaps there? Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. And as we discussed, it just depends on what the person's trying to do. I have found that more often than not, the business owners started their business, right? And they're running their business. They're in hyper growth mode, pursuing the American dream. I'm trying to grow this business so I could cash out for me and my family. Now, that's not selfish. That's just business owners. That's why people start businesses. You know, they want to, they're growing it, taking risk, and they want to sell it at, at a higher value in which they bought it. If you sell to an ESOP today, yes, you may be tax-free. You'd be using tax-free dollars to buy other people, but you don't own the stock anymore. The employees are getting all that benefit mm -hmm. because when they cash out, they're getting the advantage of all this growth you had, and they're taking and they're, they're getting the wealth out of that. The seller might only have that future equity stake they got from the financing piece. So if they're if they're buying this business, they're growing this business so they can grow individual wealth, so they can roll that over into another business or to donate to charity or whatever their objectives are, they, they more often than not when they're younger, don't want to give away that future growth because that's why they started a business in the first place. Mm -hmm. With that being said, if the, the intent is, and there are a lot of industries, for example, the brewing industry, the beer industry, it's more of a, hey, we're a big hug. You know, we're the... <laughs> We want everybody to. That's yeah, awesome. Let's have a beer and a let's have a beer, a beard, and a hug. You know, let's. Uh, <laughs> we want to share this thing. We want the employees to share in all of the wealth that we're growing here, um, and let's do it now. You know, and so we want to do all of it right now. So we're all in the same boat. We're all you know doing this together. But the hybrid of that is luck. I, I really want my. I do love love my employees. I do want to keep them involved. But I do want my future equity. Well, maybe we do a thirty percent ESOP. Mm -hmm. Oh, maybe we do a partially ESOP. So they have uh, uh, an employment stake in it. They have, I mean, a, a, an ownership stake in it. They're, they act as owners. They grow value as owners. They appreciate it. They stick around. Retention goes up and, you know, um, the, the workers' comp goes down. You have all these positive things. You have a lot of tax breaks. Um, but yet the seller still retains that control 
uh, not control, they still retain, retain the majority of the future equity. And then later on, they can sell the balance to the ESOP and they are ready to step out. But I do say that the whole financing process and the payout, uh, I would say allow five to 10 years uh, lead time before you want to walk away completely. Because if there's bank notes out there that the seller might be putting personal guarantees on them, and if they're seller financing, they're going to want to stick at that company at least as chair of the board until those bond, until those mm-hmm. notes are off. Uh, so they don't want to sell to these sub day one and just hope that the management you left behind can meet all the financial requirements. Uh, you want to stick around at least as chair to make sure that's uh, all taken care of. And I'd, I'd, I'd give a five to 10 year glide path for that. Well, yeah. And that that's just shows the model, the modeling and the scenarios, how important it is because I mean, you can't just you know, punch out today. So you got to have a little bit of runway, but you don't want to be, you know, putting rocket fuel to it while you're doing that runway at the same time, unless you have like, you calculated how much or the risk or the equity that you're giving up. Exactly. So well, let's say just one more thought on this is let's say you were to do a 100% ESAP. Um, how does like the distribution of the shares go with all the employees and the management? And cause maybe this kind of ties back into the fourth and we kind of, kind of wrap it all together with, how did like how did the uh, the shares dis, uh, distribution happen, and then how do you get the management and uh, family members, and what does the whole structure look like after the fact? Yeah, that, you're reading my mind. I had one item left on my list <laughs> that I didn't cross off, and it is share allocation. Um, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, that you know the, the ESOP may buy even 100. percent And I'm not forcing people into that. It just t- tends to be the popular thing right now, so you don't have to do 100%. But in any scenario, these soft buy shares, the shares are not allocated and put into employee accounts the day the ESOP buys them. That because what happens if you hire somebody tomorrow? There's nothing. You know, the shares are off. Sorry, you weren't here yesterday. <laughs> not yesterday. Yeah. You know, like free beer tomorrow. Well, n- you know, never comes. So, um, so the, like the ESOP beer shares, Sorry. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry about that. Exactly. You caught me. Um, so shares, the ESOP buys shares day one, but it, but um, company may, they have to decide how long do we want to, do we want to allocate these? How long do we want to be handing these out? This is our employee benefit. So we want to figure out what's too much, what's too little, what percent of pay do we want to be given out every year? Because we're buying substantial assets here. So generally the company says, we're buying 100 shares. We're going to get about five shares a year for 20 years, or you know, multiply it by whatever how many shares there are. Generally, it's a 20 or 30 year period that the company says, "Look, we bought them all day one. ESOP bought them all day one, but we're going to hand them out over the next 30 years, so we can recruit to that. We can say, look, hire your friend, call your friends and your hardworking family and buddies, work here, stay, become more vested. Every year you're here, you get more shares. Every year you're here, you get more vested." So, so that's a good reason to have it over a longer period of time, keeps people involved. And if they leave any time before 30 years, they're leaving chips on the table, right? They're leaving future allocations and future value on the table. But so let's say it does take 20 years to allocate the shares. That means every year for 20 years, 5% of the shares are being allocated every year, right? Five mm-hmm. years for 20 years, 100%. So year one, the first 5% is going to be allocated. Well, that's subdivided to the employees based on the, any individual um, workers, their compensation relative to total payroll. So if Susie makes 3% of payroll, Susie's going to get 3% of that 5% that's being handed out that year. Hopefully that made sense. So next yeah. year, Susie gets a raise. Susie makes 4% of the payroll. 
So Susie gets 4% year two of the 5% that's being allocated. Which is why you're doing all the compliance weighting and discriminatory modeling, right? Because like how do you figure out payroll and salaries and all that stuff in accordance to making sure everything's fair? I don't know if I caught the question so, exactly. So, well, okay, if you've got you know a million dollars of payroll, you know you got the whole top heavy that uh, Aris always uh, yeah. is looking at. So, how do you figure out who's getting paid in accordance to making sure that you've got your you know your executive bench that all nailed down and and top notch getting paid what they should be, but also what kind of benefits that does that make sense? So, like, how do you yes. structure all that? I'm, you, I'm gonna I'm gonna cop out. That's when you hire. And we recommend a top-notch third-party administrator. <laughs> I recommend uh, post post ESOP. You know the administrator, the third-party, like just like you might have a four hundred one k administrator, but an ESOP is. I think it's. I would say even more important. They keep track of compensation, who's eligible, um, who gets a payout in any given year, who's vested. They fill out the the, the forms, the fifty five hundred reporting forms. So they would help keep track of all of that stuff. So the burden on the company is, I'd say, I wouldn't say light, but not heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, they just have to give some reports to the, the third party administrator, and they kind of track all that stuff. And they'll tell you if some somebody leaves, they know how many shares they get in any given year, and then when they they quit, die or become disabled, they know how much they're owed, and tell the company you owe this person you know this amount of money. Mm-hmm. But but with all that being said, that's the ESOP shares. Now, in addition to that, there's a generally for key managers in the top, top inner circle, um, we generally want to do a little something extra for them too. Mm-hmm. Some kind of phantom stock or synthetic equity, generally something tied to the stock value. Even if the stock is all in the ESOP, we may say to the management, look, we really like you guys. I want you to stick around and you're the future management of this company when I'm paid off. We're going to also assume you have 200 shares outside the ESOP. <clears throat> you don't really. But we're going to have a legal binding contract that says you are owed the value of 200 shares and you get that in 15 years. So if you stick around, you get the value of 200 shares. If you don't stick around, you lose it. So you, I, did not know you could layer, I did not know you could layer a phantom stock agreement right on top of an ESOP. So it's just a typical, yeah. however you structure, whether it's stay yeah. retention or whatever performance, yes. whatever it is. Exactly right. Huh. It, now, there's some testing. Now, I don't want to gloss over it. There's some testing and <laughs> take away all the value of the company and leave nothing left for the rank and file. But mm-hmm. when they're done in conjunction, you can certainly do it. So now look at our overall picture. We have the rank and file that has a future equity stake in the company. And they stay for 20, 30 years. They're getting shares every year for the next 30 years. You have the management that have ESOP shares. They also have other compensation that's driven off of equity value in these phantom shares or, or something else like, like it's the stock appreciation ranks or something. Then you have the seller who sold the stock but still has a future equity stake because of the financing package. Remember the, the future 20 or 25% that they may be getting mm-hmm. of the future by the company. They're trying to drive stock value growth. This trustee sitting there smiling like a butcher's dog because every single person in the company is driving stock value. Mm-hmm. So it's very successful. And so stock ESOP companies drastically outperform their peers. And this has a large part of it due to the current structuring when we do some of these um, structuring techniques that we just talked about. So let's, uh, I lo- yeah, because everybody's driving in the same direction. And is just to final, uh, finalize some thoughts on that, can you put a deferred compensation structure in place or is it just phantom because it has to be very clean? So it, it certainly could be either. Um, one of the drawbacks of doing true deferred comp, uh, of, of, well, all of the not insurance re- and all that stuff, right? Because uh, you want to be well, careful. That, that, that's true. I guess I was insane. Many owners would have liked to have done phantom stock or stock appreciation rights but they don't want to have to value the stock all the time. 
we're already getting evaluation done every year. Yep. So because the ESOP requires that. So we already have evaluation being performed every year. So the addition of phantom stock and stock appreciation rights, we're not acquiring an additional cost because the va- they're already being valued every year. You can give them a statement and tell them what it's worth every year because you're already doing it anyway. Yep. And you generally, I think it makes sense to have their compensation tied to corporate performance mm-hmm. versus the stock market. Yep. Now, you could, but if you want to, I have no problem with it. I'm a big fan of deferred compensation plans and um, supplemental executive retirement plans. I'm a big fan. But in conjunction with the ESOP, when you're trying to drive value for everybody, I personally feel that maybe the stock appreciation rights and fan of stock might be a little more apropos. Well, you've already got the whole foundation laid, like you said. Correct. So how does that tie into family and gift and estate planning? Because as you're kind of restructuring the whole family estate with this, the ripple effect touches everybody that the estate touches. So how does, yeah. how does that get integrated in everything? Well, let's talk about the fourth tax advantage that I deferred, and you, you nailed it on the head. Here's what it is. That, as soon as you do, the seller does the ESOP, that's the time to do personal estate planning. Let's talk about a couple things. First of all, remember those, that future equity stake we talked about, mm-hmm. the warrants, the future equity stake. Well, the day you get the, that future equity stake of the company, it's of a company that it was just 100% leveraged potentially. What's the value of the stock Mm-hmm. The day you get that zero, right? Yep, you have yep. a company worth $20 million. We just borrowed $20 million. The equity value is practically zero. So you have a 25% equity stake 15 years from now that's worth zero today. That That's hardly worth anything. That future equity stake is hardly worth anything. That's the time to gift that away mm-hmm. into family and limited partnerships and future generations because it's not hardly worth anything. Knowing darn well when the debt is repaid, the company's going to go back to $20 million, maybe $30 million because you're a tax-free company. So you may be giving away 25% of a $30 million company um, later for a gift tax consequence today of practically zero. Mm-hmm. So it's a great way to transfer vast amounts of wealth from the, the seller's generation to future generations with zero or little gift and estate tax consequence today. It's a fantastic time to do that. Second, And secondly, you can do that with I'm not an expert in all this stuff, but I know grant or retained trusts. Um, you can retain an income stream, the seller, and then when they die, the, the remaining uh, balance goes to family, or you could do it in a charity called a charitable remainder trust. You can say, look, I'm donating this when I die. In the meantime, I'm taking an income. And when I die, you get the, the remaining asset and the seller gets some incredible tax advantages when you combine it with the charity. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of stuff there, as well as the seller note. Remember, the seller note is subordinate to the bank. And remember, the reason you got the warrants, the future equity stake, is because you were getting less than a market rate of interest. So, and it might be interest only until the bank's paid off. That can be discounted 40, 50, 60% in some scenarios. So, if the seller doesn't need that portion, the seller note, they can live off the principal and other assets or, or the down payment that the bank gave them in other assets. They don't need the seller notes. You can gift that away to family members as well mm-hmm. or, um, at a very low estate tax planning consequence. So there's all kinds of charitable, you know, um, grant or trust. We can get income streams, just straight out gifts to charity, um, moving gift and estate taxes to future generations. Um, plus, we found the assets to do islets, you know, for estate planning, mm-hmm. for estate tax purposes. We found all the assets we need from the sale proceeds to fund any of the, you know, in, you might need insurance policies and all this other gift and estate tax planning. It's the great time to do all of that. That's the fourth tax advantage that I left on the table earlier when we're talking. 
Well, I mean, it is, it's one big Rubik's cube. And I think, you know, the, you're going to see the, the, the return on your investment with, uh, with the work that you put into place on this. Yeah. Right. And so when people say it's, it's complicated and expensive back to what I said earlier, yes, it is, but look at what we've done. Um, you know, yes, you may not be paying capital gains tax on the sale. The company may not pay federal or state uh, income tax ever again on the profits. And that can equate on $20 million company. That might be a $30 million of tax savings over the next 10 years, mm-hmm. plus not paying capital gains tax, plus gifting away to future generations with virtually zero gift tax consequence. And it might cost you a couple hundred thousand to put the ESOP in place. Is that really expensive? Yeah, right. You know, it has a pretty good return. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what, what exactly. is the, what's the time frame from thought process to execution, and what are the like, kind of the major key steps? Um, well, we we do five steps, uh, and it's it's like this, and everybody else has a variation. They make combined steps. I, I like to do a lot of education. Uh, almost everybody I know in the ESOP community are, are you know uh, like to preach the gospel. We love to tell the story because how many seminars have we been to? at um, different events, you know, by universities or by CPA groups or insurance companies. They talk about business succession. ESOP's not even a bullet point. Drives us crazy. I don't know why. It's complicated. They're scared. So we like to preach the gospel and talk a lot about it. So education is the key. We'll do all the education that client would like to hear at no cost. And then we like to do a complimentary, um, sign a non-disclosure and do a complimentary multi-point review just to see if the nuts and the bolts, the cash flows work, uh, the values in a range that the owner expects, the values in the range that makes an ESOP effective. Um, they have enough employees, they have enough payroll. Um, are they going to get the benefit out of it? No cost to that. Just to see if they're, you know, we don't want to waste our time or their time. Give them a, either a written or verbal report just to see if it makes sense. Then generally after that step, that's the multi-point review. Generally, our, our first pay step is we call it a preliminary valuation slash preliminary analysis. And it's for a uh, couple thousand dollars, we'll, we'll provide a, a value, uh, calculation of value you can hang your hat on for ESOP purposes. And then based on that value, um, we'll run a model, a couple scenarios, maybe 50% sale or 100% sale, maybe a C-corp sale or an S-corp sale, because there's different tax consequences. We'll run different sales, uh, different, different models, look at total benefit, uh, tax savings, um, uh, net proceeds, and what effect on cash flow it has, just to see if the company can cash flow based on the value. And like I said, that's a couple thousand dollars just to see if we're making sense. Because if you, if you don't do that, why are you going to spend another, you know, bunch dollars <laughs> to figure out how to change your board structure when you can't get the value in the cash flow, right? You might as well stop there. So we carved out that little baby step so you can hop off the train if the train's not going the direction you want it to go. And then, but then you move into a feasibility study where a lot of people start. And if you want the full boat and you want the blueprint from implementation right from the get-go, you can start here. We're happy to do it. We suggest you take a baby step. But you go into a full um, blueprint for implementation. We're sharpening all those things we already did, plus talking about the financing package, designing the future equity stake, getting um, letters from the banks to see what they're willing to do. We're recommending board additions. We're recommending stock splits. We're talking about what are we going to do about the match in the 401k. We're figuring out all the details. And at that stage, you'll, you'll know what it's going to cost to implement the rest of the plan. What are the attorneys going to cost? What are mm-hmm. the administrators going to cost? What are the trustee going to cost? What are the valuators going to cost? Kind of figure all that out and give the client and say, here's the blueprint. And we talked to all the people that are, need to be involved. And we brought in all the attorney, every we need, suiting your scenario, the best attorney for you, the best valuation person that is your industry. We'll bring all these people together. 
that say it's going to cost X to do what we laid out in this feasibility study. And if they want to go forward, they sign all the contracts, including my firms, pull the trigger, and we hire everybody, and we get the deal done. Uh, it's generally uh, three to six months um, you know, from beginning to end. And a lot of that's due diligence gathering and and waiting on people to do what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's you've broken it. I think you guys, just the, the, the gospel and educating people is so important because there's so many things you know, where you just jump the gun and then you realize that you went through all this work and then it's not worth it. And I think that's the biggest fear that a lot of people have. So I, I honestly, I think Dan running through everything that we did, I, it was fantastic because now we understand what, what kind of project we're willing to tackle because you have to have your head yeah. in the game if you want to be able to go down this route, but you know, you're going to be able to reap the rewards. Um, as we're wrapping up here, what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? Well, you're, you're happy to just check out our, our website. Uh, uh, you can get my information at esopguy.com, esopguy.com. And my telephone number is 724-766-3998. We have a lot of white papers we've written and uh, articles and information about our firm and uh, other type of information you might be interested. We'd be happy to send you a, anybody a complimentary book put out by the National Center for Employee Ownership. It kind of talks about the nuts and the bolts of how ESOPs work. Um, it, it's complimentary. We'll, we'll send that to you if you like that um, and answer any other questions. Thanks, Dave, for coming on the show. Appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. That was probably a lot for a lot of people because we got really technical in some of the different areas, but I wanted to do that because I think there's just too much ambiguity around ESOPs that has it painted in a bad light when you can see the crazy amounts of benefits that it brings. So my three main takeaways from the episode with Dan, one is the the structure and the financing. You know, when you're sitting down and doing a sale to an ESOP, if you can see the amount of control that you have over the process, it's pretty crazy because if you're going to go sit down and sell to a strategic buyer or a strategic competitor or even a PE firm, you're going to be at odds with them because you're both dealing with the fact that you want the most amount of money and they want the least amount of money to hit their returns. And you got the asset stock sale complications, all this stuff that puts you at tension and at odds with the buyer and the seller right off the bat if you're not doing this. Or in this situation, the time it takes to plan to structure the right deal between how much the seller finances, where you get your banking and the relationship of the interest rates tied to the seller financing and the terms and the the conditions that you have and the flexibility you have with the seller financing after the deal that I was actually unaware of. And just realizing that you can almost reverse engineer into your goals because you're working with yourself and the the team of advisors with you. Yes, you have to get to that true valuation, but then everything comes about optimizing what you currently have. So I just, I think the amount of control that we all want as entrepreneurs and ESOP brings a crazy level of control to a sale. And then you actually will continue to be in that business as much or as little as you want, depending on the work you've done ahead of time with management and with operations and stability. So I just think it's a, it's a very huge opportunity to maintain control over the process. So the second one is the second takeaway I was really resonating with was the amount of control that you have before and after the deal. I was surprised to hear that you're still pretty much running the business as is. I know I've talked to a lot of other people that say, you know what, well, you no longer own the company. Well, 
technically, yes, that is true. But how you structure the board of directors and the trustee allows you to have the control over the things that really do matter. So on paper, you might not own the business because the ESOP still or now does, but you're still able to have a lot of control over the the fabric, as Dan had put it, of the business and the culture and the people that you hire and why you hire them and the things that you do, which I think is most of the reason we all get into business anyways, is because we want to help people change their lives. And you still have that ability to control that should you set yourself up for that. And then the third one of the takeaways, the third takeaway I just have to say is taxes, obviously, because those four tax strategies that Dan lays out, he clearly identified all of them. And I think he did it in a way that you're able to articulate and envision of what that kind of tax savings does. I mean, the biggest thing that I think all of us are constantly concerned with is what what kind of annual taxes I'm paying today, and then what kind of taxes am I gonna pay when I sell my business and give my wealth to my kids? And an ESOP is a crazy vehicle to be able to maximize and optimize all of those different situations if done correctly. So I think that's even worth looking into if there's even an option, because you've heard from my story that the amount of taxes we paid and most people paying to sell their business is not enjoyable. And it's worth doing the due diligence to look into this if it's a viable option. So if you're still listening, I appreciate sticking around. Hopefully it was beneficial. And until next week. 